good. Well, hey, welcome to Harvest, and um, do me a favor, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We're going to be in Acts 20 uh, this morning, and um, thank you guys for coming out to church, all of you faithful Michiganders who didn't bail on us to go to Florida for spring break. Um, you guys enjoy the snow yesterday? Um, I had friends texting me, like, eating lunch out on the beach at Panama, at Panama City, and I was like, not today, right? Like, I, I love all of you. You guys get extra credit for being here and in Michigan, and I kind of want to let you know what we're doing. We have been going through the book of Ephesians this spring, and, and if you remember last week, my dad finished the book of Ephesians. He finished the second half of chapter 6. If you remember, he preached in his pajamas. You guys remember that? Um, here's what I'll tell you. This is a little bit of insight into how things work at Harvest. There's some things he gives us warning that he's going to do before he does them, and then there's other things he does not give us warning that he's going to do before he does them. Last week was in the latter, so I apologize for that. I was powerless to control that, but um, we got through Ephesians, but here's the cool thing. We're not done with Ephesians, and uh, we have two more weeks before Easter, so what we want to do is, is we want to look at, at a passage in Scripture where we get to see the Ephesian church in action this morning, which is why we're in Acts 20. We've, writ, we've read and, and talked through a lot about what was written to the church, but now we get to see the church in action, which is cool. And uh, this is one of my favorite passages because um, it's just so powerful, but it's also unfamiliar. I, I think this is going to be a passage a lot of you have never heard before or maybe read, but there's so much that we can glean from and, and that's important for us. So I'm really excited to get going. Um, so we're going to start in verses 17. I'm going to read through verse 38, and here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Paul say goodbye to the Ephesian church. Paul's ministered at this place for three years. He's their church planter. He's their spiritual father. He's their pastor. But the Holy Spirit tells Paul, hey, it's time for you to go, and you need to go back to Jerusalem. And so what Paul does is he gathers the leaders of the church together, and he says goodbye to them. And it's the last time he will ever see them again in their lives. Look at verse 17. It says this. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to, the, to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remember, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. 
And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrow most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. All right, so there's a lot there in those verses. I'm actually a little bit out of breath just reading all of that. So what I want to do is I want to give us a big idea that's going to focus our time together. And here's what I really think that we need to hold on to in this passage. Um, there's two foundational elements to a healthy church, and, and those are truth and tears. Two foundational elements to a healthy church are truth and tears. If we're going to be a church that God is glorified in and that God wants us to be, we need to be a church that is filled with truth but also a place where tears flow regularly. Look again at verse 36. He says, And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word that was spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. All right, do you see how sweet that moment is? Like, can't you just see the tangible love that those people had for Paul and for one another and the Lord? They're kneeling, they're praying, they're crying, they're hugging, they're kissing, like snots running down their face. Like, these people love each other. And when I read that, I'm like, how do we get that as a church? How can we be a place where the love of Christ and one another is so tangible, you, you can see it in motion? Well, the way we get there is through truth and tears. And so what I want to do is I want to look in verse 20. And in verses 20 and 21, we're going to see four important elements that the truth plays in a healthy church. Look at verse 20. He says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house in house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of the repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul's saying is, is, listen, when I came to you, remember, I told you the truth. I was honest with you. And, and what we see here, the first thing we see, is that the truth is central to the gospel. The truth is central to Christianity. You don't have Christianity without truth. Christianity is rooted in and founded in on truth claims, on statements of fact and truth. Jesus did this, right? Remember when Jesus came, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes through the Father except through me, right? That's a statement of truth. That's either true or it's not. He is Lord or he's lying, right? Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you, and you need to go and you need to make disciples of all nations. It's based in the truth. We're two weeks away from Easter, and what we see is that um, our hope as a faith is rooted in the historical resurrection of Jesus, that that's true, that it really happened. 
that Jesus was actually dead, then physically, miraculously, through the power of God, rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. If that is not true, we have nothing. Christianity is founded in truth. Imagine this for a second. Imagine you were to go home this afternoon, and as you were pulling into your house, you looked at your next-door neighbor's driveway, and they had this big uh, national flag of Denmark draped over their house. Right, they've draped their house in the Danish national flag, and then later when you're taking your garbage out tonight, they, you run into them and they start speaking to you in Danish. And you're like, what's up, John? Like three days ago, we were talking in English. Why are you speaking Danish to me right now? And, and imagine if they said to you, well, haven't you heard the news? America's in financial trouble, and, and America decided to sell Michigan to the Danes. We're all part of Denmark now. We, we are a territory of Denmark. What would you tell them? Right, you would be like, no, that's not true. We're, we're, we're Americans, we're not from Denmark, we're not Danish, that didn't happen. Well, I really believe that it did. Like, I feel in my heart, I, I woke up feeling very Danish. It's like, well, I don't care how you woke up, I don't care what you feel, it's not based in reality. Paul's saying is everything I told you was true, and it was based in historical fact. And then look what he talks about specifically when it comes to the truth. Look at verse 21 testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I told you the truth about yourself. I told you that you were sinners, that you stand condemned before God, that you've rebelled against God, and that you need to be made right with God, that you need to repent of your sin, that outside of faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross, his work in our place, all of us are damned. All of us are hopeless. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. Paul's like, I told you the truth about yourselves. You know, it's um, interesting. I was having a conversation this week with a guy who lives out of state. And he was talking to me about how he was in the process of transitioning churches. And he said, I knew it was time for us to transition our church. And my wife and I kind of came to that agreement together when our daughter came home from children's ministry. And we asked her, how'd children's ministry go? And she's like, it was good. They gave me some homework this week. And they're like, what's the homework? And the girl was like, well, I'm supposed to tell myself that I'm awesome 20 times every day. That's my homework. Tell yourself you're awesome 20 times every day. And the guy was like, the problem is, is that's not the truth of the gospel. I don't want my daughter believing that God loves her because she's awesome. I, I want my daughter to know that she's going to fall short and she's going to sin, but that Jesus is awesome and he loved her and he lived the perfect life and her hope is in Jesus. Like, listen, to tell ourselves we're awesome, it's not true. Turn to your neighbor and tell him you're not that awesome. I love how quickly kids turn to their parents whenever I tell them to do something like that. They love that so much. Um, but it, 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 it's true. Our hope is not in our awesomeness. It's in what Jesus has done in our place. Here's the next thing you have to understand about the truth. The truth is always offensive. The truth is always offensive. Look at verse 20. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything. Well, the fact that he would have to say that I didn't shy away or I didn't shrink would mean that there would be good reason to shrink away and to be shy because the truth always brings an offense. He's like, no, I was bold. I was honest, I didn't cower or shy away. The church is an offense in every culture, in every time period since Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And here's why. 
Because Christianity is not the result of a culture or a time period. It's eternal. It's supernatural. So it's always going to cause an offense. 2,000 years ago in Rome, Christians were an offense because they wouldn't acknowledge Caesar as God. According to the Roman hierarchy, Caesar, the leader of the Roman Empire, he, he was like equal with the gods, and, and he was uh, a more than man. He was immortal. The Christians were like, no, that's not true. You're not king. You're not Lord. You're not God. Jesus is Lord. He's on the throne, and our loyalty and allegiance lies with him. That was an offense. That's why they were persecuted. Today, in America, 2,000 years later, Christianity is an offense for different reasons. It has nothing to do with Caesar not being God, but it has everything to do with our positions on sex, marriage, and family. If you hold to a biblical view on these things, we are backwards, we are repressive, we are an offense to our culture. Well, here's the amazing thing. If you go across the world, like if you were to go to the Middle East, um, actually those countries, they align more with God's view on marriage, sexuality, and, and family. That's not an offense to them, but you know what is an offense to them? The idea of forgiveness. Because in the Middle East, those are shame and honor cultures. And so if someone mistreats you, if someone brings shame on your family, you never let that go until it's made even. Your family's honor is on the line. So this idea that you would turn the other cheek and bless those who curse you and love your enemies, they're like, we have no category for that. That's an offense because our family's honor is what matters most of all. Different cultures, different offenses. The exclusive claims of Christianity, that there is only one path to salvation, that's an offense. Can I, can I ask you a question? How many of you guys have heard the argument, well, if you grew up in India, you'd probably be Hindu, so it's not really fair to say that there's only one way because you just happen to grow up in America, which is Christian. How many of you guys have heard of that? You want to hear a really great rebuttal to that argument? Why is it that Christian is the, Christianity is the only religion that has flourished on every continent? Christianity, Christianity has flourished in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and America. Every other world religion tends to hang out in its cultural geographical region. You want to know why? Because Christianity is not a product of a certain culture or geographical region. It is supernatural. It's true. It's eternal. It is fundamentally different than every other world religion. That's why Jesus says, count the cost. Pick up your cross and follow me. And church, I love you enough to tell you this. If you are going to live with a bold witness for Jesus Christ, you're going to be an offense. Your life will be an offense. I have no way to protect you from that. But it's okay because it's promised and Jesus is with us. Here's the third thing you need to see. That the truth is constantly attacked. That the truth is constantly attacked. Jump down to verse 28 with me. He says this, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He says this, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after themselves. Okay, do you see how confident Paul is in what's about to happen? He's like, I know what's coming for you. He's like, fierce wolves are going to come. They're going to attack the word of God. From among yourself are going to rise people who want to lead people astray. False teaching is coming. The truth I told you is going to come under attack. And, and here's what I would say. Truth has always been under attack. And um, he's like, it's coming. 
And, and so what I want to do is, is like, all right, how does this play out today? And, and I want to talk about two kind of false truths or, or, or areas of false teaching that's prevalent in our culture. Two things to pay attention to today. Here's the first. Um, beware of a gospel that minimizes or eliminates repentance. This is very, very popular in uh, America, and, and it's this idea that, listen, God just loves everyone, and God is love, and that's all that you need to know. And, and here's the problem is, is there is truth in that statement. Like, listen, can God's love save anyone from any spot in their life? Absolutely. Is there anything that we do in ourselves to earn or merit God's love or favor? No, but listen, the gospel does not allow us to stay where we are. The first words that Matthew records of Jesus when he entered his uh, ministry, it was the words repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and you don't get to have Jesus and still place yourself as king and lord over your life doing whatever you want. There is this idea of repentance, acknowledging our sin, talking about it to God and to others, being honest about it, and turning from that sin and placing Jesus as Lord and living a life that honors him. We run from our sin. And church, here's what I would tell you. There is no entrance point for anything that God would want to do in your life that doesn't begin with repentance. There's no salvation without repentance. There's no heaven without repentance. There's no Holy Spirit without repentance. Repentance. Christianity is an acknowledgement that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we talk to God about that, repent from it, and turn from those things. Uh, a couple months ago, I read a book from a guy who was about my age, and it was a book about his experiences as a pastor. And it was kind of his manifesto for following Jesus. So I was super interested in it, and I picked it up and I read it, and 99% of the book was amazing. He talked about pastoring, he talked about discipleship, he talked about spiritual disciplines, he talked about trusting God in doubts and in difficult seasons and in hard times in life. He was only missing one thing. He never mentioned the word sin or repentance in his entire book. And it's like, how do you write a, a, a book about following Jesus and not mention the first words that Jesus proclaimed when he started his ministry? I think sometimes we think, man, um, let's not talk about sin and repentance because that's going to turn people off from the gospel. People don't like to be told that they're sinners. Well, here, here's my equivalent of that. That would be like starting a scuba diving company and saying we're not going to use oxygen because the tanks are ugly and it's going to throw people off or turn people off to scuba diving. Right? If you don't have tanks, you don't have a scuba diving company. If you don't have repentance, you don't have Christianity. Here's the second thing to be aware of. It's this. Be aware of a theology that attacks the clarity and authority of Scripture. Be aware of people who attack God's word, its clarity, and its authority. Do you remember the first lie that, that Satan told, the first attack on God's authority in the Garden of Eden? He said, did God really say? Did God really say that you can't eat of any fruit of any tree in the garden? He's attacking the authority of God's word, and he's twisting it. Any type of theology that drives towards the gray. I don't know if that's what God's word really says. Maybe God didn't mean that, but that was the author's intent because the author was in a backwards culture. Maybe we've evolved past these truths. This happens all of the time. 
If we're going to be a church that honors the Lord, we have to be a church that holds high the authority of Scripture. I love this idea. We don't stand on the Bible and cast judgment on it. We hold it over our heads and allow it to speak truth over us, and it becomes the filter by which our hearts are judged. Then here's the first fourth thing you need to know about the truth. It's this, is that it's given both publicly and individually. It's given both publicly and individually. Look at verse 20. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So do you see how the nature of Paul's ministry went? He would gather the church together in a large group setting, and he would teach and preach to them, but then also ministry was happening within homes. And I was so floored when I read this because it's like, man, it's almost like this whole small groups thing is biblical, right? We gather together in large groups, but then we need God's word into the areas of our life on an individual basis. Paul's like, both had to happen. Harvest, look at me. Do you know it's really, really easy to hide in this church? Do you know that? Like, look, this is a big room. It's easy to come in, to not be known, and to hide. And by the way, we have two locations. We meet on two different days, and we have four services. It's easy to hide. And uh, one of the pieces of advice my dad gave me, which I think is so true and right, he's like, Cal, the worst form of communication is texting and emailing. He's like, if you ever have to have a difficult conversation with someone, don't do it over text, don't do it over email, because you can't read tone. And oftentimes things get worse when you just read something because you don't know what the tone is and you assume the worst. He goes, the second worst way to solve an issue is to do it over the phone. Because even though you can get a little bit more information, you might get to hear how something was said in the tone, you miss all of the body language, right? Like you can't see what their posture's like, if they're warm or if they're cold. He goes, the best way to resolve something is do it face to face. You get to see how they respond to you. You get to pick up on body language. You really get to know someone. It's, it's hard to hide in a face to face conversation. You know what's better than even a face to face conversation? Meeting with people face to face routinely over and over and over again, because then it gets almost impossible to hide. Some people can still do it, but it gets really, really difficult. And here's what I love. Like, I have friends in my life who are part of this church that, like, they'll come over, and before I even say hello, they'll be like, Cal, what's wrong? And I'll be like, what are you talking about? They're like, we can tell you're off. You're not your normal self. Something's bothering you. What, what's wrong? Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. And I'm like, dang it. Right? I didn't want to get into this tonight. You know what I mean? But like they knew me better than I knew myself. I couldn't hide. Listen, it is not enough for your spiritual growth to come here once a month and to hear me preach a message, even if my messages are amazing. It's not enough. I don't appreciate the laughter over there. Um, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be a joke. Um, but listen, even, even if, and listen, I'm all for preaching. Does God's spirit and word move powerfully in preaching? Totally. I've given my life to it. But it's not enough. We need to be a place where there's more than one truth teller. We need to be a place where people are speaking truth into each other's lives. You need to have it individually, not just publicly. Okay, but there also needs to be tears. Do you notice all the times in this passage people are crying? Right? In verse 19, 
Paul's like, I came to you and I ministered through tears. And in verse 21, he was like, I, 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 I preached to you and, and I proclaimed the gospel through tears. And at the end of the passage, everyone's kneeling, they're hugging, they're crying, they're weeping, snot's running down their nose, it's ugly crying, and, and it's like my wife watching a chick flick. There's just tears all over the place. And it's like, why is that so prevalent in these relationships? Why is there this strong connection? And I think we see three reasons for tears in a healthy church. Here's the first. Um, because the gospel frees us from having to hide. Because the gospel frees us from having to hide. Look at verse 19 again. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He's like, when I came to you, I was honest with who I was. I didn't hide. I was humble. I told you about my issues. I told you about my fears. I told you about my suffering where life was hard. I cried with you. I, I, I didn't hide from you who I was. You know that my message is genuine. And here's one of the things I love about the gospel. The gospel tears us down to its studs before it builds us back up. Like, you understand, church, the gospel says some pretty awful things about all of us. You know that, right? Like, the gospel asserts that all of our hearts are desperately wicked. That if it was a choice on our own between following the Lord or living for our glory, we would choose ourselves every day and twice on Sunday. That our hearts lie to us, that, that, that we don't even understand why we respond the way we do and our own motives, that, that, that we have run away from God, that we stand condemned. And in spite of all of that, we have all received the greatest love the world has ever known, a transforming, redeeming, life-changing, empowering, world-altering love. So here's my question. If we really believe that, that all of us come in here broken? None of us here are perfect? Can I ask you a question? Who in here do you really have to impress? Like, if we really believe the gospel, it gives me the freedom to raise my hand and be like, hey guys, what the Bible says about me is true, and I'm not in great space right now. That life is hard, and I'm struggling with sin, and, and, and I'm struggling with hope, and I'm not doing great right now, and, and I need help, and I need prayer. Like church, one of the greatest signs of spiritual maturity is actually believing the gospel enough to raise your hand and, and to say, I, I, I'm not doing great. I need the people of God to come around me and hold me up because I'm wiped out. And, and the scary thing is, is there's some of you in here and I'm looking at your eyes right now and I know you're thinking to yourself, I would never do that. I would never ask for help. I would never cry in front of people. I've got to keep on the facade. I've got to be macho. I would never lean in in that way. And my question to you is, is what are you hiding from? Who, who do you have to impress? Like, we should be the place and the people who, when people are struggling, they run to because we understand that none of us have it together. None of us are walking in perfection. Here's the second reason we cry. It's because suffering is painful. Suffering is painful. Look at verse 22. It says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul's like, what I'm about to walk through is going to be awful. And, and the people start to cry because they're suffering, because they know they're never going to see Paul again. 
Life is difficult. Paul is walking into suffering. So they pray for one another. They hug one another. And all they can do is cry. And, and church, here's what I want to I want to talk about three quick things on suffering. I'm going to move through these fast. Here's the first. Um, suffering is part of our sanctification. Notice in verse 22, Paul says, I'm being led into this. That he was constrained by the Holy Spirit. He's like, God's not absent from this. I'm not suffering because God's mad at me or punishing me or because I've done something wrong. I'm actually being led into it. Paul, oftentimes when he talks about suffering, he refers to it as sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That God uses our suffering to unite our hearts with Jesus. That when we suffer, especially unjustly, we become close, more closely united with Christ because we know what he experienced. We know how he felt. He goes, I am doing this because God's leading me into it. Right? In our culture, in secular humanism, suffering serves no purpose. If a job is hard, just quit. If friends mistreat you, just block them and move on. If marriage gets difficult, just bail. But Paul's like, listen, no, no, the pain points in our life. Right? Think about your life right now. What are the pain points? God's using that to make you more like Christ if you will allow him. He's not absent. He's not wasting a moment. Here's the second thing about suffering. Suffering isn't fair. Suffering often isn't fair. Right? Paul's not suffering as a consequence of a decision he makes. He's just being faithful to God. He's preaching the gospel. He's being bold. He's doing what God is calling him to. And the result's going to be imprisonment, being lied about, being slandered, being beaten. And he knows he's on a death march. And, and church, here's what I would just tell you. If you're one of those people who believes that life needs to be perfectly fair, you're going to live a frustrated life. Oftentimes, suffering's not fair. And look what he says. I love this. Look at Paul's mentality. Look at verse 26. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He's like, I know I'm about to be falsely accused. I know I'm about to be slandered. I know I'm about to be imprisoned, but I can lay my head down and rest at night because I am innocent of the blood of all. I was faithful to what God called me. His hope is not in making everything fair here on earth. His hope is that he can stand before God with a clear conscience. Here's a question. How many of you in here have been lied about? Raise your hands up if someone's lied about you. It's really painful, isn't it, to be lied about? And, and there's something in us that we want vindication in front of the people who we've been lied about to, right? We're like, I want that person to tell the truth. And admit that they were lying. I want others to know that what he or she said about me wasn't true. And it's like, man, we want vindication in the moment. And what Paul's challenging us with is you might not ever get that. But it's okay because God sees. We need to align our hearts vertically and say, hey, can we stand before the Lord with a clear conscience and say, I did to the best of my ability what honored the Lord and that's enough. It's really hard in the moment to believe that it's enough that God sees and knows and will reward faithfulness. Then here's the third one. It's this. It's that suffering doesn't always resolve. It's not always fixed. And um, in doing ministry at the church, and I'm even thinking of my small group and different small groups I've been in in different situations in this church, there's a lot of times where, like, I wish I could tell you that your suffering's going to have a Disney ending where everyone lives happily ever after. It doesn't always happen. 
And there's been times where I've been in small group with people and it's like, I can't fix what you're going through. Maybe it's health related, maybe it's a relationship thing, maybe it's a financial thing. And it's like, there's nothing you can do to fix it. There's nothing that I can do to resolve this for you. But here's what I can do. I can continue to sit with you and I can continue to pray for you. And I can continue to text you and give you encouragement. And when you're not doing well in the suffering, I can be someone who you can reach out to and we can pray together and we can cry together. And then we can do it again next week, even though things probably won't change. But we're going to wait on the Lord and we're going to walk together in tears and prayer because it's not resolving. Then here's the third reason there's tears. It's this. It's because the Holy Spirit binds us together. The Holy Spirit binds us together. I love this picture at the end of the passage where everyone's huddled around Paul and, and they're praying together and there's this bond they have in Christ. And, and I don't know if you're like me, but when we get close to Easter, I start to think of the last week of Jesus a lot. And, and it's interesting because I see this picture where Paul is huddled together and he's praying with his friends. And I'm like, man, the same thing happened to Jesus the night when he was betrayed. Remember that? He goes to Gethsemane, and he's like, I'm really struggling. I'm really distressed. Will you pray with me for an hour? And he grabs his closest disciples, and he says, will you pray with me? And do you remember what they did? They fell asleep. They abandoned him. And then 24 hours later, Jesus would be abandoned by his heavenly father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so here's what I don't want you to miss as we head towards Easter. Jesus suffered abandonment. From everyone he knew and loved so that we could have the Holy Spirit which unites us and binds us together and we can have the exact same relationship that Paul had with the Ephesian leaders. What Paul is sharing with the Ephesians was accomplished by Jesus when he went through the abandonment of the people that he loved and who loved him. And so here's the thing, if Jesus went through that so we could have this, why would we not lean in? Why would we be too busy? Why would we neglect these beautiful relationships that God makes available? Listen, our unity in Christ transcends anything that could divide us. It transcends age, race, stage of life, even the Michigan-Michigan state rivalry. Like, I can even love those losers who got to Florida this week, right? Because we're united in Christ and we share that in common. So I don't have to have anything in common with you, but I can love you deeply because we share Christ. All right, so what's the result of a church that's filled with truth and tears? It's simple. It's deep and meaningful relationships. And, and what I love about Acts 20 is when I see this, I'm like, man, I want this for our church. I want this for our small groups. I want this to be a place where God's word is elevated but it's also a place where people come and they weep together and we're so tightly united that this tangible love is present. So here's what I'm gonna do as we close. I'm gonna, uh, I love to close with questions that make you think on your drive home, hopefully. I'm gonna ask you a weird one today. Here's what it is. Who are you close enough to cry around? Who are you close enough to cry with? When you see what's happening at the end of Acts 20, do you have relationships with people in this church that you could cry with that know you so well, that you know so well that you're like, man, if my life was falling apart, if I needed help, I would run to these people. Or are you hiding? You know, it's funny. Um, 
you know how we close here at Harvest. We'll close with a song of worship. We'll do a couple of announcements. And then as we close, we always say, hey, if you need prayer, come front. We have pastors and elders who are ready and willing to pray with you. And it's funny because every week this happens where someone will come up and there'll be something going on in their life where they need prayer. And I'll be standing here and as they come forward, I'll see it in their eyes as they're approaching. Their eyes will start to water and they'll start to cry. And then do you know what happens every time right after they start to cry? They apologize for it. They're like, oh, I'm so sorry for, for crying. Like they're worried that that will make me uncomfortable. And I'm like, don't apologize. That's exactly what this place needs to be. We need to be a place where we are so moved by the Holy Spirit, where we are so broken over sin, and, and that we are a place where we love and trust one another, that we can be honest with each other and cry. Is this happening in your relationship? Is it happening in your small group? What might be the next yes you need to say to the Lord to get to that spot? A church that honors the Lord is full of truth, but also tears. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I just thank you for a really cool testimony in the book of Acts. I thank you for the love that we get to witness in this Ephesian church. God, I'm so jealous for that in our ministry. And God, I know there's so many people here that do this so well. And there's such a joy and privilege and blessing. I'm thankful for the people in this church who I've cried around and can cry with, God. And I just want that for, for all of us. God, would you move in our hearts would you help us to believe the gospel? Would we be a church where the love here is truly genuine? We love you. We need you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.